Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, January 9th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. You'll notice now we have switched to Mondays. We hope that you will join us for new episodes every Monday. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Well, I want to wish all of you a very happy new year, and I hope that you had a wonderful holiday season. And of course, you've probably encountered some things in the holidays that weren't quite as pleasant, Uh, whether that's people in your family that you don't have a lot in common with anymore, or some kind of rituals that maybe aren't as meaningful to you as they were in the past. This episode, in some ways, is for you, because this episode is about questioning the very things that we often take for granted like empathy being always a good thing. I've really been interested in empathy for over the last few years, as it's a way I feel that music can really touch us. And since I'm a musician, I always want to know what it is about a particular performance that makes it more or less effective. And for a long time, I've been thinking that one of the answers is empathy, that when I'm an effective performer, then I am allowing the audience to see what it is to be me to get step into my shoes, to feel what it is that I'm trying to express, uh, to come across or get across some ideas that are in my mind that are difficult to verbalize, but that I can portray using music and emotion. And that's why I was so excited to hear about Paul Bloom's newest book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Paul Bloom is a professor of psychology at Yale, and we've had him on the show before talking about his book, Just Babies, about the moral development in babies. His books are always provocative and thoughtful and always include some of the latest research from his lab and his colleagues' labs. And so I was particularly keen on hearing why he thinks empathy is something that can lead us astray. So that'll be our show for today. But first, let's take a short break. And we'll be back with my interview with Paul Bloom. This week's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. If you're like me, you probably don't have a lot of time to think about what you're going to eat, go to the grocery store, get all the right ingredients, come home, cook it and prepare it. And that's why I like services like Blue Apron, because they do a lot of that work for you. 
Blue Apron is committed to have a low impact on the environment, so their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef is raised humanely, chickens are free range, pork is raised naturally, and regenerative farming practices are used for their produce. Cooking together also builds strong family bonds. And even if you don't have time to do the groceries and figure out what you're eating, Blue Apron can still give you that experience of cooking together. Some of the meals that you could uh, get in January include seared pork chops with farro and cranberry chutney, spaghetti squash and marinara with mushrooms and garlic knots, spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash minds. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash minds. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. When the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places, and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit a festival, or just head out into nature. Well, the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you've got an attitude for adventure. Its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard, including a pre-collision system and lane departure alert. It even has five USB charging ports because the last thing you want is for someone's device to run out of power. Another cool thing it has is Driver Easy Speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seat so your passengers can hear you. Doesn't mean they'll listen, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the system may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. The TSS pre-collision system is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Lane departure alert is not a substitute for safe and attentive driving practices. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds, Paul Bloom. Thank you for having me back. So this is the first time that I've read a book in which the first few pages actually attempt to address the criticisms that will follow. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting that you started out that way. And so I want to start there. What, uh, what led you to anticipate people having strong reactions to what you're saying? So more than any other book I've done, I've been working on these ideas in public for the last few years before I even started to write the book. I published something in the New Yorker and then in the Boston Review, both of them exploring the idea that empathy is actually a really bad guide to being a good person. And the responses to these articles made me realize what people don't like about the argument. It made me realize why it so, sounds so intuitive, what the objections are. And over the years in which I wrote the book, I think I have a good sense of what the reader will say when they first hear the arguments, and I try to respond to it. I try to say, look, don't misunderstand me. This is what I'm saying. This, this counter argument will occur to you, but it's not, it's not a good direction. There's evidence against it. I'm not saying I have the answers to, to everything. I'm not saying this book's going to convince everyone, but I do feel like I sort of could have enough of a sense of what people will say to sort of start the discussion right at the get-go. So let's start there. So the title of your book is Against Empathy, which obviously suggests that uh, you don't think empathy is <laughs> the be-all and end-all. And I want to 
just get it out of the way first. Uh, what do you mean by empathy? And um, like, just tell us about the sort of two types that you distinguish in the book. Right. So, so people mean different things by empathy. And the subtitle of my book is The Case for Rational Compassion. So if people make it to the subtitle, at least they'll see, wow, there's some sort of difference being maintained here. And so I'll give you, I'll answer your question. I should also stress, I don't care about terminology. If people want to use the words in different ways, that's fine by me. But what's, I think, really important for people to realize is there's different psychological processes that need to be distinguished. So some people mean by empathy just being kind and being good, being a mensch, being helping out people, making the world a better place. That's not what I'm arguing against. Other people mean by empathy what's sometimes called cognitive empathy or emotional intelligence or social intelligence, which is the ability to understand other people's minds. So I have empathy for you if I could figure out what's going on in your head, what you want, what you believe, and so on. And that's not what I'm criticizing either. I think that you need some sort of cognitive empathy to be a good person. If you know, you're not going to make the world a better place. You're not even going to be able to buy people good, good holiday gifts if you can't figure out what's going on in their heads. But it could also be used as a tool for immorality. So a successful psychopath or seducer or con man or torturer also has a superb understanding of what goes on in people's heads. So the sort of empathy that I'm dealing with and I'm concerned with and I'm attacking is what's sometimes called emotional empathy. And this is feeling the feelings of others. I see you in pain, maybe in physical pain, maybe in emotional distress. And I feel your pain. I feel empathy towards you. I feel your suffering. And many people, many philosophers and psychologists argue that this is an essential catalyst for good behavior. I argue that although sometimes it can lead to good behavior, more often it gets us into trouble. You know, I, I think that's a really important distinction to make. And it also, though, doesn't diminish the fact that, you know, it's not just uh, clickbait, your title. It's not like you're saying you're against the kind of empathy that everybody, I think, really feels really strongly about. I mean, for me, you know, empathy really is putting yourself in somebody's shoes from and from the feeling perspective, feeling what they're feeling, you know, going through that. And by reading the, your book, it occurred to me that sometimes that can be such a crutch when it comes to the way I behave, because I feel things very strongly. I mean, I'm the kind of person that, you know, when there used to be those long distance commercials on TV, you know, when long distance was a thing, you know, they made me cry every time. <laughs> and, and I used to think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm such a sensitive feeling person. It must mean that I'm a good person. And yet it's not like I did anything about that. You know what I mean? It's not like I then went out and, you know, raised a bunch of money for people who are, you know, separated from their loved ones or, or what have you. Um, and it occurred to me that maybe if you have those strong feelings, it kind of gives you a get out of jail free card because you think you're doing good things when in fact you're not actually doing anything. Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, you're hitting on so many good issues. So a lot of my arguments against empathy is that it leads to poor decision-making because it's so biased and it's enumerate. It's what causes us to, to, to focus all of our energies on the one adorable child and ignore the suffering of thousands. Um, and it could be motivated to, to get us to do bad things and so on. But you're zooming in on something which I think is super important, which is suppose there is a right thing to do. There's somebody to help. There's somebody you care with, somebody you want to help. Even in this situation, empathy in the sense we're talking about can get in the way. Um, I give examples from doctors and therapists. And in fact, I got a letter from a doctor who said that her high empathy uh, kept her from being able to be good at what she did and she had to, to, to stop. But, but let, let's take an example we, we were just been talking about about parenting. 
Um, so I tend to high empathy as well. Like I, I, if I'm with somebody who's sad, I get sad. I tend to weep up at certain things. And I don't think it's my best trait. And I certainly don't think it's my best trait as a parent. So any parent sometimes deals with a kid, particularly when a kid gets a bit older, and the kid is angry or anxious or, or glum. And good parenting does not involve absorbing the kid's feelings and then sharing them with the kid. If my kid is, if my teenager is freaking out because he left his homework for the last minute, good parenting does not involve me freaking out. Um, rather, good parenting involves me stepping back and being calm and saying, okay, let's calm down, let's see what we can do, and so on. In general, if you love your kids, you're not so focused on their short-term experience because you're focused on a long-term experience. One way I put it in my book is being a good parent involves not only involves being able to, to withstand the short-term suffering of your kid, it involves being able to cause the short-term suffering of your kid. As when you say you can't go to a party because you got to do your homework or you can't do this, you can't do that, or you have to do chores and so on. If you're too empathic, you can't do any of those things. You're so much caught up in the pain and pleasure to people around you. And I think too much empathy makes for a bad parent, a bad doctor and a bad friend. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, the doctor thing is something that you brought. It really hits home with me because there was a time in my life when I had to choose between medicine and, uh, you know, psychological research. And I chose research because I didn't want to lose empathy. And I saw that happen. And every one of my friends who went through medical school, they became a little bit colder, a little bit, you know, more detached. And, you know, me just it, it just wasn't a choice that I wanted to make given my, you know, other interests. And it's interesting. I used to always think, well, you know, it's just it's something that I don't want to give up, but it would probably make me a better doctor. And what you're suggesting is quite the opposite. Yeah, I, I'm suggesting that. Again, the terms get used in slippery ways. So even at Yale, at Yale New Haven Hospital, there's a program for empathy training for doctors. And you might think I would hate that, but I love it. Because what the program comes down to is they train doctors to treat patients with respect, to spend time with them, to listen, to understand them. All good things. All good. So a lot of what comes under the empathy rubric is good things. But when it comes down to empathy in the sort of narrower sense we're talking about, it's not a good thing at all. And if you have too much of it, you can't do your job. I have a friend of mine who's a, a clinical psychologist, and she so she meets patient after patient, 50 minutes, 50 minutes, 50 minutes, and these people are, some of them are in bad shape. They're depressed, they're anxious, and I couldn't bear it. If I spent 50 minutes in a room with somebody who is extremely angry or anxious, that would do me for the day. But my friend has enormous compassion for these people, has devoted her life to making their lives better, deeply understands them or tries to understand them, and feels none of this empathic distress. She tells me that her meetings with these patients energize her because she's so curious about her lives and so engaged in trying to work things out and, and make their lives better. So the distance needed to be a good therapist or good parent or good doctor or good first responder or good cop or whatever, the distance needed requires um, uh, dampening or extinguishing your empathy. And, you know, this kind of narrowing of focus, not just in terms of how we define empathy, but that's one of the you know, strongest metaphors in your book, this idea that what empathy causes is a spotlight on whatever it is that we are empathizing with. So, you know, tell us a little bit about that metaphor. So the metaphor is a metaphor sometimes used by fans of empathy and, and, and reasonably enough. So what they say is, look, um, often we're just indifferent to the suffering of people. But if you feel empathy for somebody, you put yourself in their shoes, you feel their pain, that will be a catalyst for good action. 
And so, um, and, and there's a lot of experiments by, uh, by Dan Batson and others for what they call the empathy altruism hypothesis, which is the feelings of empathy. And they define empathy slightly different, but close enough. The feeling of empathy towards somebody motivates you to be kind to them because it takes your spotlight of attention and zooms it in on them. And I actually think that's true. If I wanted you to help one individual person, um, I would try to get you to feel empathy for them. It would really, it really does make a difference. But my book goes on to argue that that's where all the problems start to arise. So a spotlight only lights up what you pointed at. And so empathy is enormously subject to all sorts of biases. And we see this in the lab. You can, you can look at, at empathy in the brain, parts of the brain resonating to the pain of others. And it turns out that that empathy, not surprisingly, is totally uh, based on, is the person part of my ethnicity? Uh, do they look like me? Are they attractive? Are they safe? Were they kind to me in the past? Those sort of people trigger empathy. Are they scary? Is their skin a different color? Are they strange? Are they ugly? Are they disgusting? Those shut down empathy. And so empathy-based decisions almost always turn out to be biased in favor of your in-group. It's why there's enormous focus on the suffering of, of specific people who are adorable or who are close, who are safe, while the suffering of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands is ignored. And then this comes with the second problem of that empathy is enumerate. So spotlights have narrow focus. And so one way I put it in my book is, is because of empathy, governments and, and people care immensely more about a little girl stuck in a well than they do about crises that could affect the lives of millions, maybe billions of people. And you made that extremely clear with your analogy about Newton, uh, which is, you know, right close to where you are, and uh, the number of kids who die in Chicago every year. So this was the this I begin the book with a description of the Sandy Hook shooting and the reaction of people in my community about it, and it was a horrible event. It was I, I you know I still think about it. A lot of people think about it. There was a murder of twenty children at Sandy Hook Elementary School, and then a six adults and another adult at at, at the, the murderer's home. And it is it is at the time it was this immensely important event, and what I argue in the book is. Of course, it's an important event. It's a tragic, really, really critical, important event. But the importance we give to it isn't properly calibrated to the numbers of suffering people involved. Um, so, for instance, there's a lot of people who are worried about mass shootings. We think mass shootings is the big problem, the big problem with guns, a big problem in America. It turns out that if you could snap your fingers and make all mass shootings go away, nobody would ever notice you did it based on over, overall homicide statistics. Under one estimate, there are about 0.1% of American homicides. And so the real problem is all the teenage kids and others being killed in cities like Chicago, which kind of, which way or way more than, than any sort of mass shooting. But our psychologies don't work that way. Our psychologies, and as an example by Paul Slovic, uh, this girl, Natalie Holloway, some of you people might remember her. She was a teenager who got abducted in Aruba. And at the time of her abduction, she took up far more network news than the crisis in Darfur and all of Africa and everything like that, because she was an attractive white girl. And so Americans could feel empathy for her and for her parents. Yeah, it's kind of amazing when you when you put it that way, because then in some ways, you know, feeling those strong feelings for Natalie Holloway or for the kids who lost their lives at Sandy Hook and, of course, their parents really makes us feel as if, well, we're involved in some way, we're good people because this this is making me cry too. And yet 
the much bigger problem then goes even more ignored because, you know, who wants to now think about all the, you know, single shooting victims that happen every day, you know, possibly even, you know, more frequently than that in this country. That's right. And empathy leads us to behave in odd ways. I mean, you talked before about the selfishness of empathy and you see it in certain ways when, um, after Newtown, the Newtown shooting, people sent uh, plush toys and dolls and teddy bears to the town. And they were quickly overwhelmed with this. They're a rich town. They don't need teddy bears. And they had to pay to get a, a warehouse to put these things in. And so they told people, stop sending this. We don't need it. There's, there's poor cities in, in Connecticut that need your money a lot more than we do. And people just ignore them. And, you know, and I, I hear stories like this all the time from people in the, in the charity movement. There's, there was a recent discussion of uh, people sending canned goods to disaster sites. And that's very sweet. They definitely need some. But after a while, they get too many. And then it's just this huge burden where they have to store them. They have to worry about infestation by rats and other animals. It's a health hazard. So they tell people, stop. And what I don't find it so so sinister that some people didn't know that they were they were making things worse and not better. And then they'd stop. But what always surprises me is some people refuse. Some people say, I'm going to send it anyway. As if you're so caught up with scratching that empathic itch, they've totally lost any moorings with the general idea that it, they want to make the world better and not worse. Well, one other case in which that seems to me to really apply is the anti-vaccine movement. You know, it's like you can ignore the fact that if vac- if everybody vaccinates or, you know, everybody who can vaccinates, that we're going to decrease suffering from diseases, you know, many, many times. But, you know, one kid whose story is told on a major talk show who developed or signs of autism after vaccinations, even if they're totally uncorrelated, which now we know they're, they're not, you know, that one kid can sway so many parents to make a poor decision. I think that's a wonderful example. And there's a lot going on here. But but one one factor has to do with the curious nature of empathy. So you, I see this little girl on Oprah or, or she's described by somebody and I could, my God, I could feel her suffering. I could feel the suffering of her parents. I could be, this could be described that their, their grief and their guilt at having her vaccinated and so on. And even if I know intellectually that if we shut down the vaccine program, say approximately a dozen children will die as a result. That doesn't, you can't feel empathy for children who would have died but didn't in some statistical way. That doesn't motivate you. Empathy zooms us in on immediate costs and blinds us to future statistical costs and benefits. It puts tremendous pressure, it, put, it gives tremendous weight to somebody who suffers and almost no weight at all to the knowledge that many people will suffer if you do stuff otherwise. So I want to turn now to uh, a way in which something you put in your book that that really resonated with me too as a as a neuroscientist. Um, first of all, you know, thank you for pointing out that understanding the where the empathy is in the, in the brain is totally meaningless. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's awesome. So happy to hear that. But you did uh, highlight three brain findings that I thought um, were really interesting and that I want our listeners to be aware of. So, so let's talk about each one in turn, um, starting with something, too, that I've actually been called out on after giving a talk. So one of the things I talk about sometimes is, you know, why does music move us? Because I'm, I'm a musician and that's, I'm interested in that. And, you know, I start to tell people how when you're feeling emotions uh, from the 
live performance, your brain is actually mimicking what it might be like uh, to be the person who's doing the performing. And the more, you know, you know, the instrument, if you're a pianist, for example, the more similar your two brains will look. And I, you know, use the term mirroring. (laughs) And then I get in trouble. So let's talk about mirroring, um, what we mean by it, and maybe just a, you know, two seconds on the fact that it's also been overhyped. So good. I mean, I'll give in a response to that, but you could then come, you know more about this area than I do. So you could come correct me if I get in my facts wrong. My, my sense is that when people talk about mirroring, they're not altogether wrong. It's a perfectly legitimate way to think about it. So look, the first cool finding from neuroscience is that there's a sense in which we literally feel other people's pain. So the cool findings are they, uh, they take some subject and they scan her brain while she's being mildly shocked or poked or burned or, or honked with a loud noise or whatever. And then they observe her responses when she's in empathic connection with someone else having these experiences. And it turns out there's some neural overlap. So the very same parts of your brain that would be active if you yourself are being shocked would be active if you're an empath, if you feel empathy for somebody who's being shocked. Is that a good first summary of the data? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So I think that's really cool that in a sense, when you say I feel your pain, it's really it's an accurate description. It can become overblown. Um, I think a lot of the hype about mirror neurons, I I, um, positively cite this wonderful book uh, by Greg Hickok called The Myth of Mirror Neurons that that just talks about how overhyped they've been. But I do think that there is this neural empathic over. Uh, overlap. I would also think, though, that what and, and you you don't need a neuroscientist to tell you it's kind of common sense, which is you don't literally feel other people's feelings. I mean, it's kind of awful for me to say to watch somebody being kicked in the groin, but not as awful as if I myself were kicked in the groin. And if I'm all tense um, and need a massage, watching somebody get a massage is not going to soothe my muscles. In some way, your feeling of your empathic experience of others is diminished, and it's also somewhat different. Nobody would ever confuse witnessing someone else's pain from their own pain. And like all the other neuroscience discoveries, by the way, none of this is really new. So, so Adam Smith in, in the 1700s described what he would call sympathy, and he described it in exactly these terms, that sort of, some sort of that it's very similar but not quite the same. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right on. And the only thing I would add is that sometimes the overhype that makes me um, sort of nervous is actually, I think, at the crux of your book. And it's not just mirroring, it's this idea of empathy. So the overhype that I don't like is when people start talking about how our ability to mirror someone else's brain activity, even if it's not 100% perfect, is the cradle of civilization. (laughs) It's what allows for us to interact with, with each other socially. And, you know, while that may be true in a very narrow sense, it certainly, as you point out in your book, is not the be all and end all and in some ways can make can have us be making poor decisions. It can have us make poor decisions, poor moral decisions, which a lot of my argument is. But but I mean, speaking to your point, I, I think empathy is overhyped as a, a, a cognitive mechanism in in for, say, regarding making us more social are better people as cooperators and as friends and so on. If I interact with you and we're dealing with one another, I don't mirror you. I mean, there may be a bit of mirroring, but it's hardly essential. You don't want me to sort of simply reflect back your emotions. You want me to respond sensibly and reasonably to them. And a lot of the emphasis on empathy, I think, ignores the fact that 
say individuals with very low empathy, and there are some, it's just a normal distribution, are fine in life. They're often perfectly nice people. They can be compassionate and kind and understanding. They just don't tense up when they see other people tense up. They don't, when someone else is in pain, they don't uh, feel pain. I think what people, I think people have is kind of a, there's a bad idea about empathy, which goes like this. I see you in pain. I feel empathy. Now I'm in pain. Now I selfishly want to make my pain go away. So I help you. And that does it. And that's a theory of how empathy plus selfishness could equal kindness. But the problem with this theory is if I see you in pain and I'm in empathic pain, there's a much simpler way of making my empathic pain go away. I could just turn my head. I could walk away. And so even when empathy does do good, it isn't a sort of simple, your pain is my pain. I want to make my pain go away. It's something more complicated. And I think when empathy does do good, it's because empathy draws our attention to somebody's suffering. And then if we're good people, we want to make the suffering go away. If we're sadists, empathy might make us worse people because it will call our attention to suffering. And now we want to double it. And that kind of brings us to the second point that you make, which is that this empathic response is situational and very personal. So tell us a little bit about that. So there's a lot of lovely studies showing um, how biased the empathic response is. And, um, and I'll just I'll just mention two studies. Uh, one study looked at people's responses to the suffering of those described as having AIDS. And it turns out there is an empathic neural response, but it also turns out the empathic neural response is dependent on how you think they got it. So if they got it from uh, unprotected sex, people blame them and you lose the empathy. While if they got it from um, a blood transfusion, the empathy is strong. So your empathy is conditioned on whether or not you think somebody is blameworthy. Um, another study, this is one of my favorite neuroscience study, was done in Europe. They get these European guys and they hook them up and then they watch someone else be uh, in pain. I think they watch someone else be shocked. And the trick is that these guys are all soccer fans. And in one condition, they're told the guy getting shocked is a fan of the same team as theirs. And then when that happens, you find an empathic response. They, you feel their pain. But in the other condition, they're told that the guy getting shocked is from a different, supports a different team. There, empathy largely disappears. And instead, as they watch the guy getting shocked, parts of their brain associated with pleasure light up. And, and, and this just fits sort of common. Again, Adam Smith would not be shocked to hear this, that the extent to which you put yourself in other people's shoes, feel their pain, depends on whether you think their pain is merited and whether you like them and whether they're on your same team. So uh, we'll get back to the third one in a few minutes, but I do want to take a little tangent now to follow up on what you've just said, because it's so relevant to what's going on this fall. Um, and I don't know what your expectations were when you uh, had this book published, and obviously it was finished much much earlier than the election results came in. Uh, but I think this is really a major issue right now uh, as uh, people deal with the results of the presidential election in, in the U.S. So let's talk a little bit about how some of your ideas can be applied to what we see going on now, in particular, the divide between liberals and conservatives and how that relates to empathy. So I wrote most of my book um, last year, and this year was mostly just getting ready to send out. So I will tell you, I'm one of the very many people who did not anticipate the results of this 2016 election. And, and I think it does make some of the ideas in my book and some of the themes um, relevant and, 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 and sort of timely. And I'll give two examples. One example is that 
people don't normally associate the words Donald Trump with empathy, but he actually, I think, was very good at eliciting empathy for certain people um, in his speeches, in his rallies, particularly with regard to undocumented immigrants, where he would tell stories, uh, and often specific stories, of people who were victims of crimes, rape, murder, by these undocumented immigrants, and use the empathy that people felt for these victims as a catalyst towards violence and aggression towards the people who were, who, who were said to have made the victims suffer. And Donald Trump got all of his immigration policies from Ann Coulter, in particular her book, Adios America. And, uh, and, and Coulter's book itself is filled with empathy. It is all about rape. It is about rape and child rape and other crimes where she very skillfully uses our feelings towards the victims of these crimes as a way to motivate hatred against certain groups. So that's one way in which empathy was big in the last campaign. This, the second way, which I'm still sort of thinking about, is there's a lot of discussion, particularly in liberal media, over whether Clinton supporters should have empathy for um, for Trump supporters. And so many Clinton supporters says, yes, we should read books like Hillbilly Elegy and we understand what their lives of white Rust Belt people are and so on. And then there's quite a few people who say they don't deserve our empathy. Jamel Bowie in Slate was very strong about this. You know, save your empathy for people who deserve it, like uh, Muslims and immigrants and people like us. And I think the discussion is kind of a foolish one. It gets caught up in a failure to make certain distinctions. So the way I would put it is we really shouldn't empathize with Trump voters. Trump voters shouldn't empathize with Clinton voters. It's, uh, it's not something we're very good at. It, will just, it, it just leads to sort of moral confusion. It won't make us better people. It's exhausting. We should instead do something different. And this will actually connect to the third neuroscience distinction. We should try to understand them. I think there's all sorts of ways, reasons why we should try to understand the motives of our political opponents. Um, for one thing, it'll help us win elections in the future. But for another, we have to share the same country. And, you know, and, and, and understanding is almost always a good thing. And understanding does not require moral approval. So um, so many Clinton supporters would say to me, I don't want to, they don't deserve my empathy, they don't deserve my understanding because they're racist, they're sexist, and so on. And my response is, so what? You should try to understand people even if their motives are awful. When um, after 9-11 uh, attacks, um, I think the people who did well in dealing with them tried to understand the motives of the terrorists. That wasn't to approve of the motives. They weren't to say they were good motives. But understanding is almost always a good thing. But that's separate from empathy. Yeah, and I have to say, like, I feel like your book has changed my life in two ways. One is it's made it okay for me to feel or to acknowledge the fact that I don't have a lot of sympathy, I guess, or the sort of feeling side of empathy for people who chose to vote for a president for economic reasons, who, you know, issues sort of a lot of human rights uh, uh, beliefs that I really feel strongly about. And I felt a lot of anger. And I've, I've sort of, it's been very hard for me to put myself in their shoes uh, and feel that. But I do see the the need to understand where they're coming from. So to feel, you know, to have sort of have cognitive empathy. And I think that that's sort of made validated sort of some of the, uh, you know, feelings and things that I've been going through in the last few weeks. Um, and of course, the second way is what I mentioned at the top of the show, which is this idea that, you know, feeling those deep feelings for someone who is suffering is not a proxy for actually doing good. So since your book changed my life, I just want to let readers know uh, what it's called, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, and it's available now at booksellers everywhere. So that's all. it's a lot to think about. And um, 
I want to just drill down a little bit more into um, you know this this notion that empathy can be a, a negative thing, but compassion is a good thing. And although um, one of the reasons I, I've always thought of empathy as as a good thing to do, if you especially are aware or uh, that you have implicit biases, you know, there's there's some nice data. I'd be curious to hear what you think about it uh, of people who are taking the implicit attitudes test, and if they just think of a positive role model in the outgroup. Uh, so, for example, if you're a Caucasian individual taking the test, and you know it's checking your bias against African Americans, if you think of Barack Obama, you'll actually perform better, like less bias on the implicit attitudes test than if you, you know, think of someone or don't think of any individual at all. Um, so can, can sorry, that's just been a lot to throw at you. So um, let me just, you know, ask about that. Do you think that uh, that still is a way in which we can uh, temper our implicit biases? Yeah, I mean, the analogy between bias and, and empathy, I think, runs deep. I think it runs deep in a few ways. So first thing, people often tell me that empathy can do good things. And I can think of all sorts of examples where empathy for somebody motivated some positive uh, action. But of course, racial bias could also do good things. Um, if there's a black politician who's terrible, and then uh, the supporters of the other team go on to describe, to say, to appeal to racist bias to say, don't vote for him, and nobody votes for him, and the world is a better place. Well, racism's made the world a better place. But we don't typically use that sort of thing as an argument for racism. Everything can have a positive effect. Um, typically, racist bias, and I think empathic bias should be treated the same, is something which we, which we know might hold sway over our decisions, but we don't want it to. And it, that doesn't leave us stuck. We have, we have ways around it. Um, you know, if I believe that I'm biased, for instance, uh, when choosing graduate students based on their pictures, because of race, because of gender, because of attractiveness, which has a huge uh, force in biasing us. And I honestly believe none of these things should be relevant. There are ways around this. For instance, we, I could take away the pictures. We could do judgment. We could do blind acceptances. And there's all sorts of moves in the domain of, uh, of getting rid of racial bias or gender bias that involve these sort of technological shifts. Even something as sort of simple as doing symphony auditions and have somebody behind a screen. So you don't know what they look like, you don't know their gender, their race, and so on. I think we can nurture our compassion, our kindness towards other people, and basically use all sorts of ways to sort of suppress our empathic biases, and that that would make us better people. One thing I've been saying, your, your, your question had a lot of scope, so I'm kind of bouncing around here, but one thing which I've which I been interested in recently is the role of meditation, mindfulness meditation in particular where there's all these studies coming out showing that mindfulness meditation makes people not only sort of health, healthier and calmer and all that, but also nicer. And one explanation for this that some authors propose is it makes us nicer because it gets us to care and love and feel positively towards suffering others, but, it's, but, it, but it suppresses our empathic response. So we feel love for somebody, but we don't feel our pain, which liberates us to be kinder towards them. So that was actually going to be my last question, which is, you know, how do you think that mindfulness meditation does that? How, do, how, do, how can we have compassion uh, without empathy? So I think our heads are complicated, uh, particularly when it comes to motivations. And there's all sorts of motivations people have for being good. Some of them, you know, like righteous anger 
there's a book to be had about anger, and it might turn out in the end that I'm more against empathy than I am against anger, because anger is often a catalyst for so many good things and doesn't have some of the problems of empathy. There's guilt, there's shame, and then there's compassion, simply caring for people. And I don't actually know why it is that the mental exercises that direct you to be more compassionate um, make you less empathic. It might be as simple as when you're engaged in compassion exercises or mindfulness exercises or other meditative practices, one thing you're not doing is trying to get in the head of the other person. You're not trying, you're, you're actually trying to do something else. You're trying to see the world as it really is or focus on your breathing or just feel love, but you're not trying to be empathic. And this suggests, and there's some, some work by the neuroscientist uh, Jamil Zaki and others, that empathy is to some extent under our control. We can, we can override it and dampen it. It's never going to be the sort of thing which we could perfectly have. We're never going to feel more empathy for a stranger's child than our own child. But I think when push comes to shove, we are able to suppress it. And as a result, sort of, sort of paradoxically become better people. Well, that's a lot of food for thought. So um, I'm going to leave it there. And, and thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Paul Bloom. Thank you for having me back on. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Kyle Raihala, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Kishore will be back next week. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis, and you can find him at Science Quiche. Have a great week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.